This is the second lecture in Innovate 103. It follows my introduction from last week and focuses on the history of computing and AI up to the year 1973. Feel free to just listen and enjoy, but I would also highly encourage you to pause and look up the people and technologies I discuss as you go. I want you to be able to learn on the go, hence the podcast format, but there is also no substitute for a YouTube video of a 1930s proto-computer doing its thing. With that said, let's begin. Introduction, The Mechanical Turk. If we're going to explore the history of AI, we must start by picking a fixed point in the past to start our story. How do we choose? Shall we start in 2500 BC in ancient Egypt, where religious leaders commissioned sacred statues that could move autonomously in order to increase devotion from the community? What about the builders of ancient Greece and Rome who used hydraulic principles to build their own lifelike automata? Or even the Antikythera mechanism from roughly 100 BC in Greece, an analog computer built to predict the positions of the stars? How about automated musical instruments from Han Dynasty China? or even the mechanical clock tower puppets of medieval Europe? Or should we fast forward to the invention of the mechanical computer by Charles Babbage in the 1840s, the invention of the electric computer in the 1940s, or even the first machine learning programs of the 1950s? Any of these could be reasonable places to begin, but I would instead like to start with a Hungarian diplomat and inventor named Wolfgang von Kempelen. The year is 1770, and von Kempelen has just unveiled his latest creation to impress the court. It's called the Mechanical Turk. It's an animatronic man wearing a turban sitting in front of a chessboard. Its arms move robotically, its eyes blink creepily, and it sits deep in the uncanny valley. And yet, it plays a mean game of chess. Von Kempelen, and the other owners of the Turk after Von Kempelen's death, would tour the mechanical Turk around to parties, fairs, and festivals. He'd allow the spectators to take a full 360-degree walk around the device, even open it up and peer inside to see only gears, wires, and cranks. Then he'd turn the crank and let the Turk wow every crowd with its near-perfect chess play. It impressed luminaries like Napoleon Bonaparte, Benjamin Franklin, and Edgar Allan Poe. Poe even wrote an essay upon seeing the Turk where he said, We find everywhere men of mechanical genius, of great general acuteness and discriminative understanding, who make no scruple in pronouncing the automaton a pure machine, unconnected with human agency in its movements, and consequently, beyond all comparison, the most astonishing of the inventions of mankind. A pure machine, unconnected with human agency. That is, and always has been, the goal of AI. The problem? The Turk was a hoax. Through a truly ingenious series of mirrors and clever positioning of the doors, the contraption hid a human being inside who operated the device from within the chest of the Turk. But in some ways, exposing the mechanical Turk as a hoax was too late. It had already stunned and amazed some tens of thousands of onlookers. And if nothing else, it planted the seed of an important idea. What if a mechanical device could beat us at our own game? Fast forward nearly 250 years to the 2012 ImageNet competition, a yearly computer competition to determine which algorithms are best at identifying pictures. Each competitor, that is, each computer program, is presented with a series of images and asked to, say, identify the type of fish in the picture or determine whether it contains a fire truck. 
Typical performance at this task was around 75%. That is, a 25% error rate. Until in 2012, a team from the University of Toronto led by Jeff Hinton showed up with AlexNet, which achieved an error rate of 15.3%. This may not sound like a lot, but a 10% drop in error rate is like shaving a second off the Olympic 100-meter dash. This was a massive achievement, and many consider the victory of AlexNet to be the inciting incident of the 21st century AI boom. AlexNet stunned and amazed the onlookers in the machine learning community. But dig one level deeper, and what do we find? The Mechanical Turk. Not a chess automaton, but rather Amazon Mechanical Turk, a service where you can hire click workers from around the world to do small tasks online. ImageNet was only possible because tens of thousands of Mechanical Turk workers, paid a fraction of the wage of undergraduate research assistants, labeled the three million images that the competitors fed into their computer vision systems. Today, as in von Kempelen's day, we've been tricked into not seeing the humans inside of our machines. But in this course, we won't make that same mistake. We'll be focused explicitly on the human element of AI. Who is writing the programs, setting the research agenda, labeling the data? We will acknowledge that computer science is not a pure academic bubble. Its insights affect, and are affected by, what's happening in the outside world whether that's the Cold War, Japanese computing of the 80s, or digital marketing today. We'll explore the cycles of boom and bust, the summers and winters that have defined AI's history, and try to question their causes. And we'll view AI as the product of a community of scientists and engineers with their own set of values, norms, and interests. None of this is to diminish the incredible achievements of computing over the past century. Quite the opposite. To me, learning more about the people and the broader forces involved only enhances my appreciation of the science. Let's dive in. Part 1. Numbers Out of Steam Let's dive back into the 19th century, this time to England, and the work of the inventor and mathematician Charles Babbage. Babbage was a Cambridge-educated, persistently grumpy man who was extremely frustrated with the state of science in the UK. He traveled often and was particularly struck by the advanced state of manufacturing in France, leading him to write a book emphasizing the importance of division of labor. Most of his working life was spent obsessively designing and tinkering with two machines. The first, a smaller device called the Difference Engine, of which only a tiny portion was ever built. The second, an enormous train-sized behemoth called the Analytical Engine, which was never built at all, but which many consider the first ever computer. Babbage was inspired to build a calculating machine while reading logarithmic tables. These were massive mathematical books containing numbers to many decimal places, along with their logarithm, and maybe even their sine or cosine, used for navigation at sea. Sailors relied on the position of astronomical objects to orient themselves and needed to make extremely fine-tuned measurements to know their precise longitude and latitude on the globe, hence these books. But the books were generated by people, and people make mistakes, and unfortunately, the slightest miscalculations in longitude resulted in some of the biggest shipwrecks of the 19th century. At the time, these so-called voyages of discovery were a source of massive competition between European countries. Of course, it wasn't discovery from the perspective of the indigenous peoples whose land was being settled. Babbage recognized there was a huge opportunity here if these tables could be guaranteed to be accurate, and he's reported to have said, I wish to God these calculations had been done by steam. 
Before continuing, we need to talk about the main influences on Babbage, which came from two unlikely sources, textile manufacturing and the assembly line. First, textiles. In the late 1700s, the state of the art for textile weaving was to use a loom, a massive device that allowed you to efficiently weave threads together by hand. Oftentimes, these devices would be in rows by the dozens, with one person seated in front running one set of threads called the weft back and forth through a perpendicular set of threads, while another person, often a child, sat on top of the device, lifting those perpendicular threads, called the warp, at different times, in order to create a textured pattern in the fabric. There were no such thing as child labor laws back then, but ethical issues aside, this was a very inefficient system. The solution is due in part to Joseph-Marie Jacquard, who invented a loom which could be programmed to lift certain threads using a punched card mechanism. Instead of having a child sit on top of the loom, a reel of punched cards would be fed over the loom, and the warp threads would all be attached to wires that could pull them upwards. If the punched card over the loom had a hole in the position of a particular thread, the wire would pass through the card and that thread would lift. If that position was not punched through, that thread would not lift. You'd then weave the weft thread across perpendicularly, then stamp your foot, which would cause the next card to roll out, thereby causing a new pattern of warp threads to lift, and you'd repeat this process until you'd woven your entire fabric. This made textile manufacturing dramatically more efficient, and more importantly, introduced the world to the idea of programmability by punched cards, which would go on to be an essential part of the analytical engine and computing as a whole. The second idea that influenced Babbage came from another Frenchman named Gaspard de Prony. The French Revolution was based on the ideal of bringing Enlightenment reason everywhere, including the world of measurement. This meant, among other things, the introduction of the metric system and a strong desire to produce the most precise possible logarithmic tables, just as Babbage wanted as well. What Gaspel de Prony did is decide that instead of mathematicians calculating numbers, he should make an assembly line that manufactured numbers. Instead of having one person do all of the equations, he had a group of people who would do all of the addition, who would then pass their results to another group who would do the multiplication, who would then pass their results to another group who would do the exponentiation, and so on, manufacturing numbers from the ground up. The people doing these calculations were called computers, people hired to compute numbers, and they produced the most accurate logarithmic tables to date. Babbage's first device, the difference engine, relied on this idea of calculation by assembly line. He envisioned a series of columns made up of gears stacked on top of each other. Each one of these gears would have 10 prongs, so it could represent a number in base 10. The first gear in the stack would be the unit's place, the second in the stack the tens place, and so on, so that each column could represent a full number. You could, for instance, add two columns, simply intertwine the two columns, and turn the gears in one of them until they're all set back at zero, being careful to note every time the sum of two gears is greater than 10, so that you can carry the one up to the next place value. This maybe sounds simple. It's just a bunch of gears after all, but it is a truly wicked technical problem. The difference engine was never built in full because it required thousands of parts to be made by hand by Babbage and his technician. Babbage was unable to procure sufficient funding from the government, and Babbage's own ego got in the way. But in the 1990s, a full 150 years later, a group at the Science Museum in London decided to build a full working difference engine using Babbage's own designs, and it is a truly mesmerizing feat of engineering. I have visited this difference engine at the Science Museum a number of times, 
And it's just as enthralling and exciting every time. So if you are ever in London, I strongly encourage you go see it too. Soon after the failure of the Difference Engine, Babbage began an even more ambitious project, the Analytical Engine. The Analytical Engine also relied on columns of numbers, but this time, these columns were divided into multiple sections. Some columns were just for storing numbers in memory, called the store. Other columns were for actively doing calculations on those numbers, and this section was called the mill. There were mechanisms for moving numbers from the store into the mill, then transferring those results back into storage. The whole process was an allusion to the textile industry, where fabrics would be brought from the store to be woven by a mill. And just like with textiles post-Jacquard, this entire mathematical procedure would be dictated by a series of punched cards that would be fed into the engine. Babbage's engines caught the attention of many brilliant and prominent people in Victorian England, but only one person truly understood how profound this invention was. Ada Lovelace. Lovelace was a brilliant mathematician who is best known for having translated a document outlining the analytical engine from Italian into English, but she added her own insightful commentary that was three times as long as the original document. You might have heard of Lovelace in the context of her being the daughter of the poet Lord Byron, but Lovelace's mother did not want her growing up like her freewheeling father, so she decided to give the young Ada a strict mathematical education, lest she become one of those poet types. But even as a mathematician, Lovelace wrote elegantly, sophisticatedly, and dare I say, poetically. In her notes, she states that the analytical engine weaves algebraical patterns just as the jacquard loom weaves flowers and leaves. She also wrote a punched card algorithm describing how the analytical engine might compute the Bernoulli numbers, a difficult-to-calculate mathematical series, which many now regard as the first-ever computer program. But most importantly, she recognized that the analytical engine is a far more flexible device and can be used for far more than just numbers. Numbers, of course, can represent anything from chess positions to musical notes. And Lovelace says that the engine, quote, might act on other things beside number. The engine might compose elaborate and scientific pieces of music at any degree of complexity or extent. Now remember, we're in 1843 here. So there we have it. The idea of a universal computer, what would later be called a Turing machine, a device that can do far more than your simple pocket calculator and can, in principle, compute anything that can be done on any computer. In their own lifetimes, Babbage and Lovelace never saw their ideas turned into practical reality. But a generation later, an American businessman named Herman Hollerith took the idea of punched card computation, cleaned it up, and patented a tabulating machine in 1884. While Lovelace and Babbage were the computer's intellectual originators, Hollerith was its practical inventor. Hollerith designed a machine that could use electromechanical systems to count and tabulate data from a punched card. The first major application of this technology was for the U.S. Census of 1890. Instead of counting up the data from every household by hand, the census takers put the information onto punched cards, fed it into Hollerith's machine, and dramatically reduced both the time and the error rate of the entire procedure. The government saved a full two years of work by using these tabulating machines. By the end of the 19th century, these machines and replicas thereof were being used in Canada, England, Italy, Germany, and in American-controlled territories like Puerto Rico, Cuba, and the Philippines. In the 1910s, a number of companies merged with Hollerith's to form the Computing Tabulating Records Company. A decade later, under the leadership of Thomas J. Watson, the company was renamed 
the International Business Machines Corporation, or IBM. If you look at early images of IBM offices, you'll see stacks and stacks of punched cards and behemoth computers, typically operated by women. At the time, computing was viewed as something of a secretarial job, which was typically done by women. The result was that women were often in closest contact with this state-of-the-art technology. Many historians now believe that the reason that Britain and other countries lost their edge in computing in the 1970s is because the government systematically neglected its female workforce. If this particular side of the story interests you, you can see the work of computer historian Mar Hicks. Impressive though Hollerith's machines and later IBM improvements were, these were more akin to sophisticated counting machines than general-purpose computers. Unlike the hypothetical analytical engine, these devices could not be used to write songs or play chess, even in principle. Those latter type of devices would not originate until a global conflict called for unprecedented state capacity in code-breaking, weapons manufacturing, radar tracking, and fundamental physics. World War II was in many ways a war fought over electrical signals. If you could decode your enemy's signals, track their digital whereabouts, and put electricity to use in solving the equations needed to build the biggest bombs ever detonated, victory was yours. We are finally ready for the introduction of the computer. Part 2. Computers as Tools of Warfare War requires building, building requires engineers, and engineers require differential equations. Lots of them. Just mounds and mounds of differential equations. And if you've ever taken a course in Diffie-Q's, you know that these are complicated, if not often impossible, to solve by hand. There had in the past been many attempts to build mechanical devices that could solve differential equations. The most famous was the Differential Analyzer, built at MIT by engineer Vannevar Bush in 1931. Among the people who were trained on the Differential Analyzer was Claude Shannon, who would go on to invent information theory, as we will soon discuss. The Differential Analyzer was an analog device, using moving wheels and rotating shafts to mechanically simulate continuous functions. Contrast this to digital computers, which represent everything in discontinuous binary digits, which are able to solve equations in code rather than physically. The differential analyzer and devices like it were used to design parts for airplanes, determine ballistic missile trajectories, compute drag coefficients, and similar war-ready engineering tasks. But then, war actually struck in 1939, and the need for calculation increased to an unprecedented level, most notably in Britain, which was subject to ruthless German attacks at the start of the war. One of the central challenges in the UK, as you might already know, was the cracking of the German codes, most famously those generated by an encryption device called the Enigma machines. The British government set up the Government Code and Cipher School at Bletchley Park, and recruited some of the country's top mathematicians, engineers, and even chess players to lead the code-breaking effort. Among the mathematicians they hired was a young man who had recently received his PhD at Princeton and was anxious to come join the war effort at home, Alan Turing. Turing was well-known in the mathematical community for work he did in the early 1930s, where he was among the first people to think seriously about the idea of computation being done by a machine. Mathematicians at the time wanted to know, what questions can be answered by algorithms? That is, we can give clear, step-by-step, -step, unambiguous instructions in order to solve the problem. And which questions cannot? For instance, determining whether a number is prime can be answered by a very simple algorithm. Take as input that number, 
then divide it by every prime number smaller than its half. If none of those divisions go into it evenly, then our original number is prime. But what about, say, an algorithm that takes as input any mathematical statement and outputs true or false, depending on the truth or falsehood of that statement? Turing, along with his future doctoral advisor Alonzo Church, showed that such an algorithm is impossible to construct. Turing's proof relied on a novel idea, which we now call a Turing machine. Turing imagined a machine with two main parts. One, a ticker tape, divided into squares like a film reel. And two, a head that would scan those squares, read their contents, then modify the square's content and move to a new square based on what it had read. It sounds simple, but this idea is extremely profound and enabled Turing to answer a number of fundamental questions in theoretical computer science. The idea of the Turing machine continues to be extremely influential. We now regard the Turing machine as being a universal device of computation. That is, we now define the word computable to mean computable on a Turing machine. We call any device which is able to simulate a Turing machine Turing complete. Your laptop, for instance, is certainly Turing complete since it can compute, in principle, anything that can be computed by any Turing machine. The analytical engine was also Turing complete, as we saw. So in principle, it could have done anything your MacBook can too. So the young prodigy Alan Turing joined the Bletchley Park code-breaking effort. Their initial task was to modify a Polish-built device called the Bomba, which was able to decode ciphers produced by the German Enigma machine. If you've seen the film on this topic with Benedict Cumberbatch, you are likely familiar with this story. If not, then the synopsis is that a group of ragtag geeks was able to build a device that likely shortened the war by multiple years and likely saved millions of lives in the process. Much like at IBM, women played a crucial role in the code-breaking effort, with perhaps up to three-quarters of the people working at Bletchley Park being women. And these women were working in close contact with the Bomba and the other computation devices programming them, building them, troubleshooting them, understanding them far more deeper than most of the people working on them. The Bomba device that Turing helped build was not a full-purpose Turing-complete computation device. It was a specialized machine designed specifically for code-breaking. It was also electromechanical. That is, it relied on both electric and moving mechanical spinning parts. Midway through the war, Turing left Bletchley Park, but work there continued. A new German cipher machine called the Lorenz posed an even greater challenge to British codebreakers, and they required even more sophisticated computing techniques to crack it. The end result was the Colossus, a fully electronic computational machine that could be programmed using a massive floor-to-ceiling plugboard. Some people consider this to be the first computer, Though even that title is disputed, because the Colossus needed to be programmed from the outside using a plugboard. That is, it was unable to store its own instructions as part of its software. But we'll get to that more later. Regardless of its title as the first computer or not, the Colossus was a monumental feat. One of the key people who worked on the Colossus was Donald Mickey, an Oxford undergraduate classics student who became a teenage wartime cryptographer almost by accident. One summer, he signed up for a Japanese language course, but upon learning that the class was full, ended up learning cryptography. Within a few weeks, he was at Bletchley Park. Meanwhile, Turing now working at the National Physical Laboratories in London, immediately recognized the importance of the Colossus machine as the universal computation device it was. For Turing, echoing Ada Lovelace 100 years prior, this computer was not merely a tool for reaching some end. 
It was the embodiment of the possibilities and limits of logical thought. While all of this was happening in the UK, computing was moving full steam, or perhaps full electricity, ahead in the United States. Like in the UK, the main impetus for computing technology was military, even though the United States was officially neutral in World War II before the December 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor. The first major U.S. computer was the Harvard Mark I, which was first proposed to IBM's Thomas Watson in 1939. The original designer, Howard Aiken, even included references to Charles Babbage's difference and analytical engines in his initial pitch to add legitimacy to the idea. The Mark I was an immense and complicated device, far too complex to get into here, but it was electromechanical, using switches, relays, rotating gears, and more. In addition to reading from punched cards, keeping in Babbage's tradition. One of the first programmers of the Mark I was Grace Hopper. Recall that, at this time, programming a computer is not about writing code. There weren't even yet any screens or keyboards one could write code into. Programming was about manipulating symbols at the machine-readable electronic level, down to the zeros and ones. And Grace Hopper, in fact, was one of the pioneers of the idea of human-readable code, and is largely credited with inventing the first compiler. Today, compilers are but one of the many steps between code a programmer can understand and the operations the machine actually performs. Computing was already a big enterprise. Room-sized devices requiring dozens of operators and thousands upon thousands of parts to build. But the Mark I was first put to use in the largest scientific enterprise up to that point in history. The making of the atomic bomb. The most brilliant physicists in the world, many of them Jews who had fled Nazi Germany, were all working together in Los Alamos, New Mexico, to build a new kind of weapon, out of fear that the Germans might be doing the same. There were two main types of atomic bomb being developed. The first was a uranium bomb, often called the gun-type bomb. Two pieces of uranium would be fired at each other, and on contact, they would cause a nuclear chain reaction. Aside from the difficulty of procuring the right type of uranium, this device was relatively easy to manufacture. The second type of bomb was a plutonium implosion bomb. A grapefruit-sized core of plutonium was surrounded by a 360-degree globe of explosives, which would all detonate inward, crushing the plutonium core down to a speck, which would then explode back outward. This implosion mechanism was a formidable engineering challenge. The implosion needed to be perfectly spherical, any asymmetry, and the whole process would not work. The leader of this implosion project was renowned polymath John von Neumann, considered by many of his contemporaries to be the most brilliant mind of the 20th century. He was the inventor of game theory, a pioneer in quantum physics, and as we'll see, co-inventor with Turing of the idea of a stored program computer. Von Neumann's team was at the time using standard IBM punched card machines to perform some calculations, but when he caught word of the Mark I, he immediately put it to use in 1944, doing calculations faster, more efficiently, and to far more decimal places. Von Neumann became interested in the world of computers, relatively taking trips between Los Alamos and the East Coast to visit Harvard or even the Moore School of Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania, which was home to an even more impressive computer, the ENIAC. The ENIAC was also designed for military purposes and was meant to predict the projectile behavior of ballistics in flight. In fact, its first application, 
given von Neumann's influence, was to test the feasibility of a thermonuclear weapon, an even more powerful bomb design. The ENIAC was a Turing-complete, fully electronic device and was therefore much faster than its mechanical counterparts, and like the Colossus, it was programmed through a plug board. During one train trip, von Neumann wrote a draft outlining a follow-up to the ENIAC, in which he proposed the now-famous von Neumann computer architecture. Von Neumann proposed that the computer memory could store the computer program itself, so that punched cards would simply feed in data, rather than relying on punched cards or a plug board for both the data and the instructions for what to do with it. At nearly the exact same time, Turing wrote a proposal for an automatic computing engine with a similar stored program concept. Babbage and Lovelace's dream had been realized. These new devices ran on electricity, not gears, cranks, and steam, but that was irrelevant. By the end of World War II, there existed fully programmable, digital, universal computation devices. What started as a desire to improve logarithmic tables took a detour into census-taking and was now an indispensable tool of global warfare. And yet, behind the scenes, there's another thread that connects these devices and their builders together. At Bletchley Park, at MIT, at Harvard, at Los Alamos, and beyond, aside from mathematics and computers, a central tie just as important and pivotal. Chess. Starting in World War II, funding for scientific research boomed in America, largely supported by the government and the military. Mathematicians, physicists, engineers, and computer scientists were essential to the war effort, radar and the atomic bomb being the clearest examples, and it was even called the Physicists' War from its earliest days. This increase in scientific funding meant that young people could enter these disciplines and often have completely free reign to work on whatever they wanted, as long as they were able to link it to state or military applications. At the same time, the country had an increased need for people trained in computer science, vacuum tube engineering, programming, control systems, and more. The stage was set for a computing explosion. The people who came to the forefront in this post-war technological environment came from a wide range of backgrounds, but they all had one thing in common, a love of mathematics and chess. Chess captivated the imagination of nearly every major scientist interested in AI. For some, chess meant penetrating the core of human intellectual endeavor. For others, chess was one of the most sophisticated human activities and the sine qua non of cognition. Plenty of laudatory words have been written about Alan Turing, John McCarthy, and Herb Simon's chess programs, but none about their chess playing. And conversely, there is no reason to believe that chess players are any smarter than anyone else at activities that aren't chess. Magnus Carlsen, the current world number one, has admitted that he is not particularly smart. Why, then, was chess such an important benchmark for judging progress in computing? What in the game captivated the minds of these men so profoundly? Chess was popular in break rooms at universities, think tanks, and Oxbridge College common rooms. Chess had long been a prestigious activity associated with intellectuals, artists, and geniuses. Another reason is that, since chess was so difficult, people thought that it might yield fruitful new techniques in programming and computer design. The first person to express this idea in public was Claude Shannon. He wrote that solving chess will, quote, act as a wedge in attacking other problems of a similar nature and of greater significance. 
Some of the similar problems he mentions are machine translation, military decision-making, and musical composition. Similarly, Turing remarked in a 1953 book called Faster Than Thought that, quote, research into the techniques of programming a machine to tackle complicated problems of this type may in fact lead to quite important advances and help in serious work in business and economics, perhaps, regrettably, even in the theory of war. Turing's thoughts were echoed by the editor of Faster Than Thought, B.V. Bowden, who envisioned chess as leading to the tools that could automate meetings, management, and budgeting, until, perhaps someday, most of the work of the board will no longer concern human beings at all. Game-playing, then, is a gateway into automating larger areas of activity and work. A final reason chess was so important was the sheer fun of the thing, to again quote Turing. Most of the chess programmers were chess enthusiasts first, regardless of their skill level. Chess is ubiquitous, international, endlessly fascinating, and there are always new things to learn. It is no surprise, then, that it played such an important role in computing. I'm going to pause here and say that before computers can play chess, they actually were programmed to play checkers. And that is a fascinating and wonderful story in its own right. You can look up the names Christopher Strachey and Arthur Samuel if you want to know more about the checkers story. Checkers was, in fact, the origin of machine learning specifically. Uh, But here I will focus on chess because it's more closely tied with the longer history of AI. The idea of a chess computer was popularized by Alan Turing in the UK and Claude Shannon in the United States. We've already spoken in detail about Turing, so let's pivot to Shannon. Claude Shannon was a brilliant mathematician who, in his master's thesis at MIT, first introduced the idea that Boolean algebra, i.e. the logical symbols and, or, not, and more, could be used to represent electric circuits. A decade later, he wrote a paper called A Mathematical Theory of Communication, where he introduced the idea of a bit as a single unit of information. In 1948 and 1949, while working at Bell Labs, Shannon toured the United States promoting the idea that researchers should try to build chess-playing programs. He emphasized the sheer difficulty of this challenge. There are some 10 to the power 120 different possible chess games, a comically large number. To put this in perspective, even though it's truly impossible to put the enormity of this number in perspective, if every person on Earth right now played a chess game every second from the beginning of the universe until the present, they will have collectively played, here we go, 0.0000000000000000. Zero 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 zero. Okay, I'm about I'm about a I'm about a quarter of the way through. Zero zero. Just multiply that quantity of zeros by four, and then zero zero one percent of all possible chess games. Shannon wrote a preliminary sketch of a possible chess program using an algorithm credited to John von Neumann called Minimax. In order to understand Minimax, we must visualize chess as a game tree. At any given point in the game, each player can make around 30 moves. Imagine the current game position as a circle and all the possible moves as branches emanating from that circle. Then, in each of those positions, your opponent can make 30 possible moves. So now, on the first level, we have your 30 possible moves, 
And on the second level, each of those 30 moves has an additional 30 responses for a total of 900 possible games, just in two steps. Already, it's overwhelming. The central question of programming a computer to play chess is answering the question, how do we decide which path on this overwhelming game tree to follow? A naive answer might go something like this. Step 1. Write some mathematical function that takes in a given board state and outputs a score that represents how favorable your position is. Perhaps you count up your pieces, factor in the safety of your king, and somehow compute your positional advantage. Step 2. Evaluate all of the possible moves you can make and select the one that most increases your score. Step 3. Repeat until victory. But if we remember that the game is a tree, this doesn't work because it's possible that a move that improves your position in the short term might actually be bad in the long term. In other words, in just making the best move at every given position, we might accidentally go down a branch of the tree that leads to your opponent gaining the advantage. So instead, what we need to do is work backwards. If we're making a move, we need to look multiple moves in the future recognizing that our opponent is also trying to maximize their winning chances. So instead of simply making the move that most increases our score, we need to make the move that most constrains our opponent. These two techniques might coincide sometimes, but not always. And this is where the term minimax comes from we make the moves that will minimize our opponent's expected outcome given that they're trying to maximize it. All chess programs for the next 30 years after Shannon would be based on this principle in some way or another. The central question then becomes, how many moves ahead can we look? The more moves, the more possible board states to consider, which can take up an immense amount of computer memory. This problem is known as the combinatorial explosion and occurs anywhere there's exponential growth. One way to tame this explosion is to develop simple methods for knowing which branches of the tree are never worth exploring at all. If the computer could have simple rules of thumb for ignoring certain obviously bad moves, that would dramatically decrease its search. This idea of rules of thumb goes by another name, heuristics. The idea of a heuristic was pioneered by the political scientist Herb Simon, whose main area of interest was better understanding human cognition in order to improve administration, management, and industry. Simon's key idea was that humans have bounded rationality. We don't operate according to perfect mathematical rules, but are rather always satisficing, trying to optimize using rules of thumb heuristics towards some outcome. Part of the way Simon wanted to probe this idea was by making models of human cognition. And what better place to study human cognition, at its best, than through chess? So, Simon, along with his colleagues Alan Newell and J.C. Shaw, wrote primitive computer chess programs. They also developed programs that would prove mathematical theorems and solve logical puzzles called the logic theory machine and the general problem solver, respectively. Simon, Newell, and Shaw worked jointly between Carnegie Mellon University and the RAND Corporation. RAND, which stands for Research and Development, was a major early Cold War think tank that closely advised the U.S. government on matters of nuclear policy. RAND produced important work on game theory and was the birthplace of the Cold War ideas mutually assured destruction and nuclear deterrence. Researchers at RAND viewed the Cold War as a two-person symmetric war game. No wonder they thought studying chess would be valuable.
This was the milieu in which the logic theory machine and the general problem solver were born. These devices were in many ways similar to a chess program. They solved mathematical problems using search trees. At the top was the starting premise, and somewhere, along some branch of a vast tree of logical deductions, lay the proposition that was trying to be proved. The machine was a huge success. It managed to prove 38 theorems in the famous mathematical logic treatise Principia Mathematica, and even discovered novel proofs for some of them. Simon, Newell, and Shaw were ecstatic. Simon would go on to say that they'd, quote, invented a computer program capable of thinking non-numerically and thereby solved the venerable mind-body problem explaining how a system composed of matter can have the properties of mind. On the basis of this assessment, Simon predicted that within a few years, computers would be proving our mathematical theorems and beating our top chess players. As we'll soon see, he was a bit over-optimistic. The final key players that round out our cast in the early days of AI were a pair of mathematicians who happened to overlap while doing their PhDs at Princeton University in the early 1950s. The first was John McCarthy, a bearded, burly man who attended a lecture by John von Neumann while a student at Caltech in the late 40s and never looked back. The second was Marvin Minsky, a creative powerhouse who ran three labs at Harvard while an undergraduate student. Minsky and McCarthy were interested in AI from two different angles. McCarthy was a logic obsessive. He had a deeply mathematical mind and wanted to distill ideas down to their fundamental axioms, then write those axioms into computers. In practice, though, McCarthy's central contribution to computing was the way AI researchers worked and collaborated. He invented time-sharing, the ability for multiple people to work on the same machine at once without stepping on each other's toes, and founded the AI labs at both MIT and Stanford. He was also, of course, an avid chess player and viewed chess as the quintessential logical endeavor. Marvin Minsky, by contrast, thought of AI in the context of the messiness and complexity of the human mind. The mind isn't one thing operating according to some strict set of logical rules that can be replicated in a machine. Rather, the brain is a kludge, a mess of evolutionary adaptations and neural systems and confusing, complicated ideas and thoughts. Unlike the others, Minsky wasn't convinced that chess held the keys to anything profound about cognition. Chess is a closed, full-information, well-defined rule game. Life is not. If we want machines that think, they would have to be able to interact with the real world. In the year 1955, these various researchers were all working on and thinking about their projects independently but there was no unified field holding them together. That changed when McCarthy, Minsky, Shannon, and a fourth researcher named Nathaniel Rochester organized a workshop for the summer of 1956 at Dartmouth University. They were excited to not only collaborate, but to inaugurate a brand new discipline. They needed a name for the emerging field. McCarthy had previously run a workshop under the title Automata Studies, but didn't get papers that were related to building human intelligent computers. Newell and Simon tried to use complex information processing, but that failed because every group claimed that their information was complex and therefore ought to be included in the field. In the end, almost tongue-in-cheek, McCarthy settled on two evocative words, artificial intelligence. Part 4, From Summer to Winter The Dartmouth Conference itself was not a major success, 
aside from the fact that it assembled our cast of characters all in one place. Apparently, Minsky and McCarthy were unimpressed by Newell and Simon's work, even though the latter's logic theory machine was far and away the most advanced AI system of the time. Many of the participants in the conference simply didn't stay for the full duration. More interesting, perhaps, is a conference that took place in the UK two years later called Mechanization of Thought Processes, because it made clear that AI research was deeply embedded in its Cold War context. A Russian delegate, Dr. A.P. Ershov, was scheduled to give a talk on automated computing in the USSR, but ended up giving an impromptu talk on Soviet machine translation efforts. Machine translation, especially between Russian and English text, was considered one of the most important tasks in early AI. New IBM computers were advertised as electronic brains capable of executing translations that would serve the national interest in defense or in peace. Many consider the mid-1950s to be the start of a golden age for AI. Money poured into the field in seemingly infinite supply. This increased further with the creation of ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency, now known as DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, a military organization dedicated to funding scientific research. Researchers had nearly infinite freedom and could pursue what they wanted. J.C.R. Licklider, the director of ARPA, believed in funding people, not projects. And the people he funded, Newell, Simon, Minsky, McCarthy, were never for want of cash. They also had no shortage of optimism either. Minsky and Simon readily claimed that we were only a decade away or a generation away from human-level computer chess player or even full human-level computer intelligence. While these claims were pretty over-the-top, in some ways you could see where they were coming from. MIT researcher Joseph Weizenbaum wrote a program called ELIZA that could carry on a persuasive conversation acting as a therapist. Maybe I'll just say a few words about how ELIZA worked, because it's a fairly ingenious idea. The way ELIZA would work is that you would ask it a question, expecting a response from the quote-unquote computer therapist, and it would either make some blanket statement that sounded profound or simply take your statement and repeat it back at you with a question. So you would say, I'm feeling depressed. And it would say, why are you feeling depressed? And you would say, oh, because I'm not getting any sleep. And it would say, why aren't you getting any sleep? And the people using this device were struck by the immense profundity, the perhaps near-human-level intelligence uh, of this device. But to be sure, it was the 1960s, and the expectations of computers were much different than they are now. New programs could solve mathematical word problems, respond to instructions, and translate text. In game-playing, a checkers program designed by Arthur Samuel, one of the attendees of the Dartmouth Conference, was able to learn from its mistakes— and be given past checkers games from masters to improve its performance. It ended up being able to beat Samuel himself. When the device was featured on a televised promotional campaign for IBM, the company's stock rose 15 points overnight. At Los Alamos, physicists were spending the time they weren't building thermonuclear weapons focused on improving chess programs. By the late 1950s, multiple different researchers around the world had passable chess players. In 1965, one such program by John McCarthy and his students played in an international correspondence match against a Soviet chess computer. In 1968, McCarthy even made a bet against David Levy, a prominent British chess player, that a computer would beat Levy within the decade Donald Mickey, who you might remember as the accidental British cryptographer, who was now leading his own AI lab in Edinburgh, got in on the bet too. 
these researchers were as confident as it gets. There were also some brand new ideas being explored in computer programming itself. In 1958, a researcher at Cornell named Frank Rosenblatt created the Perceptron, which was a model of computation based on the human brain. Rosenblatt imagined a system of nodes connected to each other like neurons. Information could be inputted into those nodes, then would travel through the neural network and output some result. For instance, Rosenblatt's perceptron, at the time a gigantic machine which looked like a refrigerator chock full of wires and cables, was capable of scanning an image using photosensitive receptors, though it could not yet do much with that image. Regardless, Rosenblatt was very optimistic, and much like Minsky and Simon, he thought that his invention could one day learn and make decisions like a human being. But this hubris could not last forever. Eventually, reality always catches up with hype. By the end of the 1960s, a computer could barely beat an unskilled human at chess and had no chance against even a mediocre, let alone advanced, player. Computer vision systems, whether perceptrons or anything else, couldn't detect much. Machine translation struggled to get through basic sentences, let alone end the Cold War. Computer therapists were shown to basically rely on the trick of repeating back statements as questions. There had been few conceptual breakthroughs since the Minimax algorithm and the idea of the neural network. The combinatorial explosion reared its ugly head everywhere, from chess to theorem proving. Then there's the simple problem that easy things are hard. Life is not a chessboard. The basic tasks that we do, say, responding to a request to get something off of a shelf, are the products of billions of years of evolution, millions of years of culture, and dozens of years of education. Surely all the money in the world couldn't give a computer those things in only 20 years. And so, by the 1970s, things began crashing down. In many ways, it started in 1969, when Marvin Minsky and Seymour Papert wrote a book called Perceptrons. The book was a mathematical polemic, explaining that perceptrons, as they were designed at the time, would never be able to achieve sophisticated ends. Of course, the joke's on them, since neural networks are now by far the dominant paradigm in AI. But how could they have known? Minsky and Papert's book dramatically split the research community and made many people concerned about the future of their field. And then, when the government funding bodies took note, there was no going back. By the 1970s, DARPA began looking for more focused research projects instead of just funding open-ended exploratory AI. The National Research Council did the same after receiving a pessimistic report on the state of machine translation. In the UK, a physicist named James Lighthill was commissioned to write a report on the state of AI in the country. The result essentially eliminated the field from Britain for a decade. Lighthill's principal critique was that AI was trying to serve as a bridge between two disciplines that did not need bridging. On the one hand, there was cognitive psychology and neurophysiology, and on the other, there was control systems automation. The way Lighthill saw it, these two things had nothing to do with each other. If you wanted to be an engineer building better control systems, go do that. But don't get bogged down in the workings of the human mind while you're at it. I would strongly encourage you to look up the Lighthill debate on YouTube. This was an event in 1973 where Lighthill gave a summary of his report to an audience at the Royal Institution in London. He then faced questions from a panel, including John McCarthy, who'd flown over from the U.S., and Donald Mickey. In this debate, you can see a discipline at a crossroads, 
these panelists and audience members spar over what it means for a computer to learn, whether robots can ever do what humans can, and the merits of chess in AI. The period that follows is now referred to as the first AI winter, a term that was introduced in the 1980s as an analogy to nuclear winter. The founders of the field, of course, pressed on with their research, but most of the others were not so lucky. But remember, this is only the 1970s. There would still be a long road ahead to the 21st century where we are now. But nevertheless, even the story up to this point should give us pause and prompt some reflection. We should remember that the computer and AI have always been entangled with industrial, governmental, and military concerns. We should recognize that AI has always been a discipline concerned with many things at the same time. Understanding the human mind, building intelligent agents, improving administration, playing chess, implementing logic, and much more. We can use AI to think about labor practices and the central but far too often forgotten role of women in the computing workforce. We can remember that AI has been wildly popular before and is a field whose over-expectations led to its own demise on more than one occasion, as we'll soon see. And we can echo James Lighthill in recognizing that AI is a bridge. A bridge from Ada Lovelace to Alan Turing, from von Kempelen's Mechanical Turk to Amazon Mechanical Turk, from Los Alamos to Bletchley Park, and between all the people who have ever dreamed of machines who think. <laughs>